Well, good evening. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's such a nice response. In, in uh, 1994, I want to tell you about this movie that came out. Now, I'm dating myself, but some of you might uh, remember this, a movie called Mighty Ducks. Now, this is about a youth hockey team. I know some of you are too young to remember, but this, this is a team that uh, is just awful. They uh, don't really know what they're doing. They lose every game. In fact, they don't even score a single goal in their hockey game. They finish last in the, um, in the standings. So the story is about this band of ill-prepared kids who learned how to skate, learned how to play the game of hockey, and most importantly, learned something about performing as a team. Now, a key innovation, see if you remember this, those of you who are, you know, old enough to remember, was a formation called the Flying V. All right, now the Flying V, this is, uh, this is where each player lines up in two lines in the shape, obviously, of a V, and uh, they come together and skate down the ice somewhat like a flock of ducks. Therein lies the name, the Mighty Ducks. They're passing the puck among them. Now, against all odds, they won the championship game against their rivals. And this flying V was part of the formula for success. So, 20 years later, I had my own experience with a flying V. I want to tell you a little bit about that to uh, set the stage for what we're going to talk about tonight. My daughter had challenged me to sign up for a 5K run. Now, for some of you, no big deal. That's routine, but for me, I had actually been in the hospital not long before this. I was told I needed to get some exercise, and this was not routine for me. So, so I, I had been mostly uh, getting some walking exercise in, and that's fine. But for this 5K, you have to run. I mean, you men will understand. You can't go out there and you know walk. It just doesn't. Uh, you know, it's not the right image. You know, you know what I mean. Now, the, uh, the show of uh, support from my family was amazing. I did sign up for this 5K, and um, my family signed up, and they said they would run with me because they knew I was trying to sort of, you know, get into shape and so forth. So I trained, I prepared. The night before the race, they surprised me with these kind of ridiculous-looking but nevertheless, you know, nice Team Bob T-shirts. So, um, yes, it was pretty horrid, but uh, they assured me they would be there to support me. So now I encouraged them to run at their pace uh, because they're all in shape and, and could well outperform me. But, but they said, no, they were going to hang back with me, and they'd have nothing of that. So, so the race started. We plodded along at my, at my pace. Sure enough, they stayed with me. But at one certain juncture in this race, and this is what I want to tell you about, I had the experience that I most feared, and that was coming around the corner and looking down the course and seeing, guess what? A hill, a steep hill. Now, that's not good news for a runner like me. So, But my son, who's right alongside, called out the instruction. So guess what he said? Flying V. So the kids lined up, everybody running alongside. We formed the Flying V, a la Mighty Duck style. And uh, sure enough, these kids started, you know, encouraging me and kind of shouting instructions and just um, encouraging me that I could make it. So we, uh, of course, we remembered this scene from Mighty Ducks. We, uh, this is what you do as a homeschool family. You watch movies like that together. 
And uh, that's what we did. So everyone remembered this. And my spirits were buoyed. I was encouraged. I was strengthened. And I ran up the hill and, and uh, made it. So, so my question to you, what was my key to success that day? Well, um, I'd have to say the flying V. That was part of it. Running together with the people who cared enough to stay alongside of me, to help me, to carry me, to, uh, to maintain my pace, and then at the finish line celebrate our success as a team. So, so the flying V. Now, here's what I would like you to keep in mind as you think about that, that story. In the scriptures, we are exhorted to obey Christ, right? That's fundamental. You're all clear on that. Sometimes the instruction that we receive is oriented toward us as an individual. And the critical success factor is the obedience of one, you, the individual that heard the instruction from the Lord. But on other occasions, and this is what I want to emphasize tonight, there's an emphasis on the obedience of the many, the group, the community, in the Old Testament times, the nation of Israel, in our day, the church, including the local expression of the church. So let's keep that in mind as we take a look at how God wants us as a church to obey him here in the eastern end of the Lehigh Valley. So I'd like to call attention to the fact that it's important to obey as an individual, but it's also important to obey as a community. I myself had to sign up for the 5K, my individual act, but those who participated in the Flying V, they helped uh, win as a team. So might we need to pay closer attention to what God calls us to do as a church. We're pretty good at understanding our individual instruction. But are we good at hearing our instruction as a church? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now let me pause and, and, and introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. My name is Bob Briggs. I've been a part of Cornerstone Church here for about 15 years. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience for my family. I was privileged to serve as an elder here for about six years. And... Um, and so it's my honor to be in the pulpit today. Now, Pastor Tim Ackley is in upstate New York. He's visiting his family. His mother is, uh, is ill, and he is visiting her, encouraging her, and praying for her. And so while he is gone, he's invited me to come and fill the pulpit for uh, today. So, so here uh, we will continue, though, on the series that Pastor Tim has started the series is titled, The Greatest Job on Earth. If you've been here uh, recently, you know that that's what we've been talking about. The greatest job on earth, making disciples who make disciples. So let's especially focus on a strategy tonight of establishing church-to-church -church partnerships. And I will tell you more about that in a few minutes. Okay, now, a couple of years ago, some of you may remember, I'm not sure how many of you might have been here, but you may remember that I spoke to you once then on the topic of the Macedonian call that the Apostle Paul received. Now, let's, uh, let's revisit that uh, narrative <clears throat> to see a, a key example of what it looks like when an individual hears God's instruction and responds properly. So let's take a look in uh, Acts chapter 16. You'll see this up on the um, 
on the screen, I believe, where the Apostle Paul is conducting his second missionary journey, and but he's, he runs, runs into some unexpected resistance, and the resistance is not from the enemy, it's actually from the Lord himself. The scripture says, the spirit of Jesus stopped us from going into Asia, which always seems odd that the spirit of Jesus would stop him, but why did he do that? Because he had a different assignment for him. So, in a state of some probably degree of confusion, or maybe even a little frustration, the Apostle Paul saw a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia. So, um, when we get down to verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, the Apostle Paul, once he was clear on God's instructions, immediately made preparations to go to Macedonia. Now, the story that unfolded once he got there is very important. So let's, let's skip to that. There was certainly plenty of hardship awaiting Paul, prison, harassment, um, difficulties with some of the people that he was interacting with, threats, violence. But, um, but the fruit was the planting of several churches that turned out to be very, very important in these New Testament times. The first was the church at Philippi. That's where he first went and met a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of cloth and a businesswoman, a very uh, successful businesswoman, and she helped the Apostle Paul and the team get that church started. And then from there, they went on and ultimately founded churches in Corinth and Thessalonica. So all three of those churches, as you know, are the recipients of epistles later that, that you see now in the New Testament. So clearly key churches. And... Um, so this story of this region of Macedonia is important. We both see the obedience of one, which we're wanting to look at tonight. The Apostle Paul obeyed the vision. But we also see the obedience of the many, the churches that emerged and followed Jesus in these cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. So we see throughout the scriptures the importance of the individual call. In Isaiah, in chapter 6, you'll see Isaiah referring to seeing a vision of the Lord where the train of the Lord filled the temple. It was a majestic sight. And Isaiah's response to the Lord was when there was a need to go and communicate a message. He said, here am I. Send me, Lord. An individual response. Now we know from a quick review of Hebrews 11, uh, you can turn there quickly if you, uh, if you want to. We'll just look at this and uh, see a list of what really turns out to be kind of, a, kind of the all-star team, if you will. The, the, well, you can't say the all-America team. That doesn't work. But the uh, equivalent of the all-America team in these Bible times. So kind of the Hall of Fame of, of faith. Now, these individuals listed in Hebrews 11 were cited for their faith and commended for their obedience. 
Hebrews 11 starts off by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So let's, uh, if we were pretending to set up this sort of Hall of Fame and or a, a kind of an honor roll kind of situation, we would identify in this list a first team, the first all-Bible team, if you will. So, so we have the likes of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac. We have uh, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, all listed with a little, with a short description of what it is they contributed by virtue of their individual response. Honorable mention, just listed down further in the chapter, honorable mention goes to the likes of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. David didn't even make the first team. He's just sort of listed in the paragraph. But now there's another category I want to call your attention to, lodged inside of Hebrews chapter 11, and let's call this... Let's call this... um, the category of the many. We're looking for the obedience of the many. So here's this list of all these individuals who did these dramatic things obeying God. Great. We celebrate that. We honor them. But in the midst of this is something that's very important for us. Sometimes it's hard for me, anyway, I don't know about you, it's hard for me to relate to a Moses, to a David, who was so distinctive in his generation, in their generations. And we're such prominent leaders. But I can relate to the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. So in verses 29 and 30, in Hebrews 11, let's see what it says about the community. So it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea, as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, who was encircling the walls of Jericho? It wasn't just Joshua. It was the nation. It was the community of Israel. So might that be an indicator to us that what we do here as the community, the church, the expression of the church, right here in eastern Pennsylvania, will be important in the narrative of our generation. Jesus gave the Great Commission. Uh, Pastor Tim preached on this, if you were uh, here uh, recently. And this is a passage found in in, uh, Matthew chapter 28. This is following the resurrection resurrection of Jesus. And certainly anything that he said or did after his resurrection would have to be important because because, uh, this is sort of the summary, the the wrap-up, the final instructions to, to his followers. So in that context, we find this instruction to go, to preach the gospel to all nations, to teach them to obey all of Jesus' instructions, in, and in, in sort of short narrative form, to make disciples who make disciples. That's the core of our series that we're paying attention to. Now, this great commission passage of Scripture has inspired some great missionaries in our day. So we've looked at Hebrews 11, sort of the Hebrews of the faith. I mean, the, excuse me, the heroes of the faith. Now let's 
turn the clock forward. Let's look at the 19th century, the 20th century. Who are the heroes that we think of? Well, what stands out, I believe, in the narrative that we all tend to carry are the narratives of individual heroes. And that's good. That's fine. That's appropriate. Except that perhaps we need to supplement that narrative and supplement with the story of heroic acts of communities, of churches. And perhaps that might point to how we need to respond to the Lord as a church, as a community. But let's just think about some of these heroes. Hudson Taylor. He went to China in the middle 1800s, 1853, I believe, established the China Inland Mission. Was there for several decades. We have uh, Adoniram Judson at age 25. He went to Burma. He spent 40 years there bringing the gospel to that region. The first Protestant missionary ever sent from North America to that region. George Mueller, remarkable, remarkable uh, hero, leader, cared for orphans, established schools in Bristol, England. So these are first-teamers, if you will. These, these earned the first-team status, not just honorable mention, but first-team in the modern missions movement. So how do we, how do we interpret this narrative of, of uh, responding to the Great Commission for our generation, for the 21st century? So to answer this, let's take a look further at the biblical picture of what it looks like when the community, the broader church, responds. What is the role of the church in the grand narrative of history? Well, if we look at Ephesians chapter 3, go ahead and turn there if you uh, can. Ephesians chapter 3, buried in this passage is a little hint of how critical in Jesus' mind and heart the church is. So let's look at um, look at verse 7. Um, I, actually, I won't read the whole section, but this is about um, this is about the Gentiles and the and the Jews coming together in one body. This was revolutionary. This was dramatic information that the apostle Paul was bringing to the church that the church was no longer divided, but the people of God were one, no matter what their background, no matter what their cultural heritage. And this dramatic insight clearly was shown him shown to him by the lord and he's recounting he's recounting this and so dropping down to verse uh, 8 he says to me though i am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the gentiles the unsearchable riches of riches of christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in god who created all things. Now, this is a big deal he's, he's introducing here. He's talking about a plan that was hidden from prophets, hidden from angels, hidden from the people of God. It's something that God was only revealing in this age, following Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. So in verse 10, he continues. He says, So that through... The church. Now I want you to hear, this is what I want you to hear. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. Now, I hope that helps you to recognize and feel that what we do here at Cornerstone as a part of the church of Jesus in our generation is critical to this narrative that's unfolding through history. What a privilege to be a part of the church and what a critical priority that our investment in the church should be in our day. So, perhaps in this light, in this light of through these three words, through the church, let's revisit the Great Commission, re-examine it with this in mind. So, supplementing these heroic acts that the Great Commission stimulated in the in the great missionaries that we cited and the great individual heroes of the book of Hebrews, supplementing these heroic acts needs to be the collective but equally heroic act of the many, the church, even a single local church right here nestled in the eastern end of the Lehigh Valley. Now, as I was preparing for this uh, this message, I asked Pastor Tim to retrieve an email that he had prepared, actually it was several years ago while I was on the board of the church, we were wrestling with what do we, uh, what should our expression of international missions and international work look like? And and, um, and so we were pondering these matters, praying through them, considering what our strategy should be, and we had lots of different ideas among the members of the board. And, and, um, and so Pastor Tim really helped pull that together by coming up with a list of, of several key priorities that he felt like were important for us to consider. So he pulled this out a, few, uh, a couple of weeks ago and added a little commentary. But basically, these are the principles that I wanted to convey to you for us to consider here at Cornerstone when we consider what our collective heroic acts might be going forward, especially as it relates to international international work. Now, the Great Commission can be applied to work right here in Easton, our Jerusalem, if you will, to our Judea, our Samaria, which perhaps you could apply to mean the rest of the region and the rest of the nation, but then the Great Commission also applies to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I want to call our attention to the work that we might be called to do in the uttermost parts of the earth. So look, listen to these principles and see if this resonates with you. And again, this reflects not only, not only principles that we might organize around, but there's a recognition that, uh, that there is a context that we operate in here in the 21st century that's dramatically different than previous generations. And uh, we need to reflect that in our planning. So first of all, number one, there, there are, let's see, how many, I think there are seven of these principles. So let me take you through these quickly. Number one, the church in the West has been a sending church, mobilizing missionaries in, and sending them throughout the world. But the demographics have changed and are changing with the world coming now to the West. You realize that the nations are coming to us. New York City, the five boroughs of New York City, there are 800 languages spoken in that single city. The immigrant populations are coming to our shores, giving us a great opportunity uh, for a fresh kind of outreach. Number two, 
The Western church, and this is something we need to recognize as a shift from the last couple of hundred years, the Western church is no longer the stronger and dominant church in the world. Actually, the church in the global south, in Africa and Asia, is emerging with such strength and vigor that, uh, that in some cases they are sending missionaries. Do you realize that? They're sending missionaries to the United States, to Western Europe, because they're recognizing that we need help in terms of some of our spiritual strength and vigor. Number three, missions efforts must strengthen the local church, encouraging the local church to be the church on the ground in their community. Sending missionaries to do the work or counselors to do the counseling probably isn't the optimal strategy in this day. Better to be looking to mobilize, strengthen, train those on the ground to, uh, to reach those in their own communities. Number four, resources are most effective when they're delivered to individuals that we know, where we have relationships. And that increases the trustworthiness of the recipient, increases the chances that that infusion of resources, whether that's money or people's time and talent, will have the effect that we hope for. Number five, mission emphasis should be weighted around matters of justice. Now, this is um, especially important in, in the upcoming generation. The issues of justice are capturing the ten- attention of the millennials among us here and across our country. And so we need to pay attention where there are issues of justice like extreme poverty, like the... Um, like the, the ravages of war and conflict, famine, uh, food insecurity, and so forth. And uh, people that are living in the midst of that kind of suffering in those areas around the world tend to be more open to the gospel. And it creates an opportunity for us to respond vigorously. Number six, we need to narrow our efforts rather than broaden. There was a lot of talk. I told you about the kind of the wrestling the board did back those few years ago, and we talked about, should we go to China? Should we go to um, East uh, Asia? Lots of considerations about what we should do in terms of our, our focused attention. And, um, but the conclusion was that it would be better to focus in a single, in a single uh, project, a single partnership, rather than being so spread out. And number seven, we recognize that we need to align with global churches and organizations who share our vision. So, so it's clear, we at Cornerstone Church cannot take on a major project and do it all ourselves. It'll be dependent on, on partnership. So, how will we reach our Judea, our Samaria, our uttermost parts of the earth in our generation? Well, we know it'll be through partnership. We know it'll be through the response of the many, the obedience of the many, the church coming together and responding to God's instruction. So, so let's just take a, a kind of a little quick census and assessment. How are we at Cornerstone doing in terms of responding as a church to God's instructions? Well, I would say, and, and I'm, I guess I might be biased. We should probably have somebody else ask and answer this question. But I would say we're doing excellently on many, many fronts. I just heard that we had a hundred children come to an after-school Bible study 
at uh, Cheston Elementary School right here in Easton. There's so many kids coming that they're now talking about dividing into, into two groups. Some of you may be part of the team that is uh, doing this work, uh, but, but we need more workers. There is such a response. We have our Riverside Ministry continuing to consistently serve. We have our Hunter's Heart Ministry that Craig Davidson is, is faithfully doing. Our women's ministry. I heard that we had a Bible study here at Cornerstone with more than 50 women participating in it. And I've also heard that the older women in our church are mentoring the younger women at the request of the younger women. Now, this is, an, this is evidence, at least as far as I'm concerned, of a vigor of a strength that's emerging right here in Cornerstone that reflects the kind of obedience of the many that we're talking about tonight. Our first multi-site, right here at 2nd Street. By the way, a little shout-out to you at 2nd Street on Sunday morning. Uh, blessings to you. That's where I normally uh, am worshiping as part of the Cornerstone family. So the multi-site at 2nd Street on Sunday morning is developing with great strength and has been a new addition, uh, a new campus uh, for us, as well as the uh, meeting at 2nd Street on Saturday night. So this church is growing. There's a vigor. There's a strength. Internationally, let's think about internationally, our missions team has continued to serve the field-based missionaries with, with uh, excellence, doing a great job to, to, um, to serve those, especially those that have been sent out by Cornerstone and those with whom we have a, a relationship and have maintained a relationship. Katie Friend, for example, she's serving. Some of you may not know Katie, but Katie is serving right now in Germany. She had been in Austria. She's, she's serving those who are from immigrant populations that have fled to that region from restricted areas of the world, many of them Muslim-dominated. Katie's doing a brilliant job. She's, uh, in fact, she's, she's recently been asked to organize all of the trauma response for uh, those that she's serving. So now, what about a next step? Where might the Lord be leading us for a next step? Well... We've been talking about a new arena of service here at Cornerstone, and I want to mention this to you tonight and uh, mention it to you in the context of inviting you to consider this instruction, this guidance from God that would require the obedience of the many. This is not the kind of situation that would be called, that would call for one person to obey. This would call for the entire church to be participating. This is a God-sized task that I'm going to talk to you about. And it's a task that addresses organizing a church-to-church partnership with another church in another part of the world that happens to be in one of the hardest places on the planet. So, first of all, before I tell you more about that partnership opportunity, let's take a, take a look at a passage of, of Scripture that that makes it clear that each local church has its own assignment. Not all assignments look the, look the same. So we here at Cornerstone can't compare ourselves with a church down the street or a church in another country and say that we should be doing exactly the same thing, except for the fact that all of us are trying to pursue the same objective, which is to make disciples who make disciples. That links all of us together. But the strategies we pursue will look different. Now, some churches have tough duty. They get a tough assignment. 
we take a look at uh, Revelations chapter 2. Let's, uh, you can turn there if you'd like. Revelations chapter 2. Now here is the communication to the angels of the churches that are, that are referenced in the book of Revelation. And each one of them, it's very clear to see, have different, a different context and different sort of correctives, different instructions that come from the Spirit of God. So I'd like to call your attention to one of these churches that I think compares to the church that we're talking about establishing a partnership with. If you look at verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now we'll just stop right there. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now Satan is busily uh, working around the world to steal, to kill, to destroy. That's what he does. But there may be some places based on sort of the implication of this scripture that are even closer to the bullseye of where he is active, where he is focused. So, some churches have particularly tough assignments, like the church at Pergamum. But this church in Pergamum was called to do what? To make disciples who make disciples. That's the church's job, regardless of geography, regardless of time, which generation you're serving in. That is clear. So who has the toughest assignments in our day, would you say? If you just sort of reflect on the news that you've been hearing about and and maybe some of you are paying attention to global uh, issues of global missions and and you know the kinds of challenges that the church is facing, but but who would you say might be assigned closest to the bullseye of where Satan's throne is in, uh, in our day? How about the churches in Syria and Iraq? The ISIS rebels are advancing. Uh, Their intention is to eliminate the Christian church, among other things. And and they are making some progress. That's a tough assignment for the church there. How about in Iran? Uh, Christians face uh, relentless persecution. I have an email just last uh, Friday. By the way, I work for the American Bible Society. And um, so I, I do sort of keep track of what's going on around the world. And we get requests for... For Bibles from people who need them, and in some cases, uh, it's difficult to provide them because of the context. Well, Iran is one of those places, but but I got a, uh, a note from my colleague that says because of the number of people coming to faith, they are urgently needing 10,000 Bibles. Now, this is in Iran, mind you, and one of these pastors indicated that he is baptizing 100 to 150 people per month. People in that restricted country where you never hear much about any response to Christ, where it's dangerous to follow Jesus, and yet people are coming to faith in Christ. They're obeying that call. They're becoming a part of the church. What about West Africa? Now, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Togo, this is a region that's under severe pressure right now from the Ebola virus. Uh, There's a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of uh, concern. What, uh, what kind of a challenge is that for the church in those regions to, to report for duty and 
make disciples who make disciples in that kind of context. So let me, let me brief you on another such category of one of these tough places. We'll move over into Central Africa, where believers have stood for years under the oppression of a renegade militia group called the Lord's Resistance Army. Now, I'm not sure if all of you are, are sort of caught up on these events, but, but this is in a region of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in northern Uganda in the Central African Republic. That area of Africa is called the Great Lakes area. And uh, this militia group has been one of the most vicious, one of the most violent. And, um, and the church, the church of Jesus, is standing in the midst of this area where this militia has been wreaking havoc for a number of years. It's one of these churches that has invited us to come, like the Macedonian call, to come over here and help us to come and be a part of establishing a partnership. And we have the opportunity to help this church. And I'm, I'm going to tell you more about the experience that they're having. Their job in this location that I'm going to brief you on is to do what? don't mean to keep repeating myself, but it is to make disciples who make disciples. Actually, I do mean to repeat myself, so just want to make sure we're clear on this. That's their job in this area of of the Democratic Republic of the Congo called Dungu. This is the church that, that where we have been visiting, we've been partnering already to some extent, and we're talking about expanding that partnership now. So they have the same job that we do, making disciples, and when you're operating in a context like they are, it's very clear that that job is too tough and too big for one church. They need help. So let me introduce you to the leaders who are inviting us to enter this church-to-church partnership. This is not conceptual. This is live action. This is, um, this is the opportunity that Cornerstone Church is preparing to engage with. Two of the pastors who are working in the church I got to know in my last visit there, which was in uh, June. And... Um, one of these brothers had been abducted with 10 other church members by this militia, the LRA, forced to work as a slave. Thankfully, he escaped, but, but it's this kind of uh, trauma that he carries with him. Now, guess what he's doing now? Now he wants to come and um, help others face the kind of trauma that's left from experiences like that. Uh, the other brother on the right, standing next to... Uh, some of you know Bagudeki Alabayu. Uh, Bagu is uh, a great friend of, of mine, a great friend of Cornerstone Church uh, here, a uh, great friend of Pastor Tim Ackley, and he has sent us a recorded message thanking us for what we've been uh, doing already and thanking us for considering expanded partnership with the church. Well, these, these brothers in the church they lead in Dungu are, um, are living in a context where Nearly 6 million people have been killed over the last 20 years. 500,000 women and girls uh, have been raped. I'm sorry to uh, be so graphic, but this is part of the reality that we have to be able to address. Millions are displaced. They're living in camps um, away from their home or even in the bush, just surviving. But all of them are living under the oppression of severe trauma. Um, God has led us to this church. He's opened to us the privilege of entering into a partnership with them. So I don't know what 
Pergamums. Remember Pergamums' experience? I don't know what their experience was, but I can't imagine that it's much worse than what these brothers and sisters in this region of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the town of Dungu are experiencing. Now the good news is that we have seen good fruit from our early investment in this partnership. I was actually there in June to conduct a three-year assessment of an intervention that some of you know about that, um, that Cornerstone has been involved in for, three, for, these, for these three years. And the good news is that this program is proving to be effective. So I have a picture here to show you of some of the widows that have been impacted by a biblical trauma healing program that's part of a, uh, an intervention that we call She's My Sister. And our bike tour is, has been linked to this program. We've been raising awareness, raising funds, and, and some of our team, some of our Cornerstone uh, family have been in the region helping. Um, the next slide shows the sisters that I met on this trip who have not yet been through the Biblical Trauma Healing Program, and they're in deep need of, of help, and they have various stories that reflect their, uh, their trauma. The overall summary of the impact of the program is, is really good news. There have been 37 sites, um, 587,000 beneficiaries. By the way, I think there's an error on the slide, so my apologies for that. But the, the number is 587,000 beneficiaries. And you see the analysis of the, of the program. It's been effective. There's good news. There's a good start. But, but there's much more help that's, uh, that's needed. So, let me conclude and invite you to consider what our opportunity at Cornerstone Church might look like to engage in 21st century style missions activities. It will include the obedience of the individual, but it will also involve churches helping churches. It will involve all of us together responding and saying that, that we, will, we will come and assist as part of what Cornerstone does to serve churches in other regions. I don't have time to review all of the scriptures, but 2 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about, talks about the churches, remember, that were set up in Macedonia. Those churches in Macedonia, years later, responded to help the church in Jerusalem that was under severe pressure. Again, we see the picture of the obedience of the one, the Apostle Paul, who responded to the first call, the obedience of the many, the churches in the Macedonian region, turning around and helping the church in Jerusalem, when it was in need. In 1 Chronicles 12, we see a principle cited that I want to call your attention to, and it refers to the men of Issachar. The men of Issachar were, were those that discerned the times and knew what to do. We have that opportunity to discern what is the context, the challenge in our generation, in our day. How can we do the most right here from Cornerstone to help serve around the world? and in particular serve in the context of this church-to-church -church partnership with the church in Dungu in the Congo. Now, how will all this wrap up? 
all this work that we do. The, indi- the, the obedience of the individual, where does that lead? The obedience of the many churches responding, like Cornerstone has a chance to respond and be a part of work in one of the hard places in the earth through a church-to-church partnership with a church in Dungu, Congo. How will it all wrap up? Well, we see that in Revelation chapter 7. And there we see a picture that you can all keep in mind. There'll be a day that we all stand together in a massive multitude that supersedes generations, incorporates all nations, all tribes, all language groups, and together with all those who have been disciples of Jesus, who've been the fruit of those who make disciples, who make disciples, we'll be joining the angels and saying, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God. There we will be. There will be the church in Dungu. There will be Cornerstone. And there will be churches from around the world and across the ages all gathered together at the culmination of the age. How do we lead up to that day? Well, that journey continues now. Each of you have the opportunity, really the responsibility as followers of Jesus, to, 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 be the, to demonstrate the obedience of the one. And you're all responsible for that. God's grace is available to help you succeed in responding. But then we also have the opportunity to respond in obedience as the many, as the church. Remember that through the church, God intends to demonstrate his wisdom to all the angels and and the, the principalities that surround the earth. What an amazing opportunity to be a part of a church, a local expression of the body of Christ, bound together, knowing that we need what every joint supplies. What an opportunity to serve right here at Cornerstone, in our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, especially calling attention to this church-to-church partnership in one of the tough places in the world. Blessings to you all. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to just seal this, this word in our hearts.